Acts 24. Um, if you're using the blue ESV Bible and the seatbacks out there, you can find our text, I believe, on page 934. The, the title of our sermon is Justice Miscarried Again, and the key words for our worshipers in training are Felix, Festus, and Charges. We're going to be looking at Acts 24, verse 1, all the way through 25 and verse 12. As we've gotten into these final chapters in the book of Acts uh, over the past couple of weeks especially, we've seen the pace of the narrative slowing down considerably to focus on, as I said last week, this string of closely tied together religious and legal conflicts and uh, arguments and speeches between Paul and the Jews and the Roman government. And uh, this section extends all the way from Acts 21, 27 through the end of Acts 26. In Acts 21, a group of Jews from Asia seeing Paul with the Trophimus, a Gentile, out in the city in Jerusalem, though they did not see him with Trophimus in the temple, uh, they, they took this as an opportunity, remember, to agitate the crowds against Paul. They seized Paul. They dragged him out of the temple, and they attempted to beat him to death. But the local authorities heard the commotion, and when they arrived on the scene, the, mobbed, the mob stopped beating Paul. The, the tribune, the man in charge, a man named Claudius Lysias, promptly arrested Paul, mistaking him for an Egyptian terrorist who had escaped Roman hands a few years prior to that incident. However, upon learning that Paul was in fact Jewish, he allowed Paul to address the crowd. In Acts 22, we saw Paul speak gently to his attackers with much respect. He attempted to convey to his uh, attackers his Jewish bona fides. He wanted to affirm to them that he had not cast off the faith of their fathers, but he had come to proclaim its fulfillment in the Lord Jesus, who was the Messiah that Abraham, Moses, and others had longed to see. And yet God had called him, he reports, that Also in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, Paul was to take the message of a crucified and resurrected Messiah to the Gentile nations in order that they too might believe so that Jew and Gentile through faith in Christ might be made into one people of God. At this, predictably, the crowd erupted in anger and they called again for Paul's death The tribune, confused, resorted to brutality. He brought Paul into the barracks and he planned to extract from him the information he sought through a Roman flogging. But before he could be flogged, Paul informed them that he was not only Jewish, but he was a Roman citizen. Roman law prevented the binding and beating of an uncondemned Roman citizen. And so Claudius re. Uh, retreats, he retreated with fear. The next morning in chapter 23, which we saw, we saw this, uh, that last bit there, and now in 23 we saw this last week, Claudius arranged a meeting between himself and Paul and the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling court, 
It was a fruitless exercise. The court really had no interest in hearing Paul out. They didn't want productive discussion and dialogue. They didn't want to debate the merits of any particular argument, theirs or his. They simply wanted him condemned. And this was evidenced by the high priest in blatant violation of the Mosaic law, ordering Paul to be struck in the mouth a mere 16 words into his defense. Paul then offers a a scathing rebuke and condemns the high priest, making plain that Ananias was completely undeserving of his office. And then Paul tossed a rhetorical grenade into the council by pitting the Pharisees and the Sadducees against each other by explaining that the reason he was on trial in the first place really was because of his hope and his teaching in the resurrection, which the the, uh, Sadducees outright denied even as a possibility. So the meeting turned tumultuous and the tribune has Paul taken away into protective custody, fearing that he would be torn apart by this now council-turned-mob. Overnight, in the barracks, the Lord Jesus came and ministered to Paul personally. But things were far from finished there in Jerusalem. The Jews, we saw, were determined to kill Paul. Forty men made an oath that they would neither eat nor drink until Paul was dead. Their ambush, however, was foiled when their plan was reported to Claudius. In a somewhat surprising act of judicial wisdom, the tribune had Paul transported through the night to his commanding officer, Felix, the governor. He sent a letter to Felix with the relevant details of what he knew about Paul's case and informed him that Paul's accusers had been ordered to present themselves before Felix as well to make their case against Paul so that Felix could render a verdict. And this is where we pick up in the narrative today in Acts 24 and 25. Paul is being kept in Herod's praetorium waiting for his accusers to arrive. So let's read Chapter 24 in the first 12 verses of chapter 25, and then we will give an outline and get to work. Luke writes, And after five days the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul, and when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your, your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. In every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man, this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than twelve days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, 
either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believe in everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple, without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation. Should they have anything against me? Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. He then gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came down with Drusilla, who was Jewish, his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When the two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea, and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, he said, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. The next day he took his seat in the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood behind him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not escape, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. I want to take this text up with you this morning in three parts. First, in verses 
1 through 21 of chapter 24, we see Paul's trial before Felix. And second, in 24, 22 through 27, uh, we see the interactions with Felix while being kept in custody. Paul was imprisoned, and yet he had some liberties. And then third, in chapter 25, verses 1 to 12, we see Paul's appeal to Caesar to avoid the injustice of Festus. <clears throat> so look with me in the first place at verses 1 to 21 of chapter 24 where we see Paul's trial before Felix. We could consider Paul's trial in two parts. First, there's Paul's uh, accusers and their attempt to make their case against Paul. And then we see Paul's own defense. So let's consider the accusation first. We're told that um, five days after Paul's arrival in Caesarea, Ananias the high priest uh, came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. Tertullus began with not a little bit of flattery when he is finally given time to speak. He says, O most excellent Felix, though we enjoy much peace, you have wisely been making these needed reforms in our nation. We are such grateful subjects. He's, uh, he's really turning on the, the sugary sweetness uh, to, to win over his audience. And after doing that, he turns to Paul. This man is a plague. He stirs up riots among the Jews throughout all of the world. He's a ringleader of this, uh, this heretical sect of the Nazarenes. He attempted to profane the temple. However, thankfully, we were fortunate enough to stop him from his gross crime. It's the same song and dance, this accusation, right? Paul makes chaos wherever he goes. He speaks against the temple. He attempts to defile the temple by bringing in a Gentile, even though he never did any such thing. But the problem is that these charges are simply not true. It is, as you might say, gaslighting at its finest. They form a mob and riot against Paul, and then they accuse him of stirring up trouble. Paul purposefully seeks to honor and respect the temple system, at least while it still stood. We saw that in Acts 21 with his, um, uh, his being willing to go along with the plan that James had, uh, had come up with so that he might not be an unnecessary offense to the Jews living among the Gentiles. And so, despite his attempt to, to be respectful and not a stumbling block, they accuse him of profaning the temple and bringing in a Gentile. They accuse him of doing the same kinds of things they are doing. Think about it. They accuse him of profaning the temple, and yet what did Jesus have to do in his own ministry? Once, perhaps twice. He had to clean out the temple because they had turned it into a den of thieves, a marketplace that they were extorting and buying and selling goods rather than coming together for prayer, the religious leaders of Jerusalem. So they're turning it on Paul, but he's quite confident, this spokesman. He says, go ahead, examine him. You'll find that everything we say about this man is true. And the Jews in attendance give a hearty, hear, hear, affirming that he couldn't have spoken more truthfully on the matter. 
So that's the accusation, nothing new. Paul then is permitted to speak. He begins with a similar note of respect, but the sugary sweetness is distinctly missing. He says he's cheerful to make his defense before this established governor, but he notes, I've only been in town for 12 days. And he says, and when they found me in the temple, I wasn't with anybody. I wasn't debating anyone. I wasn't disputing with anyone. I wasn't stirring up trouble in the temple or in the synagogues or anywhere in the whole city. In fact, nothing of what they're saying about me can be proven at all. He then makes the case that he was attempting to make before the crowd just outside the barracks. He says, I worship the God of the Jewish patriarchs, believe in everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, hoping in the resurrection of both just and unjust. He says, these men, who apparently it was Pharisees who had come down, these men themselves will accept. In other words, he says, I'm not casting off the faith of the Jewish fathers and the Old Testament scriptures. I'm simply striving to live in accordance with them Maintaining a clear conscience toward God and man. And then he outlines what led to this particular encounter. He said he had come to Jerusalem to offer and to present these offerings for the sake of his Jewish brothers. He says he was then found in the temple without any crowd or tumult by these Jews from Asia. And then he interrupts himself. He says, hey, shouldn't those guys be here? The ones who saw me supposedly in the temple with the Gentile, shouldn't they be here to accuse me? But since they're not, what about these guys? Shouldn't they be accusing me of something they saw with their own eyes? Shouldn't it be something I did among them while we were in the council meeting recently? Now while he, you can tell that Paul is, is not taking this lightly. He is, he's defending himself well. He, he remains calm and cool and collected under intense pressure here. Paul doesn't resort to name-calling. Tertullus had called him a plague, but Paul doesn't return reviling for reviling. He simply denies that any of these things are true, and he even acknowledges the agreements, at least the agreements he has in theory, with the men who were accusing him. He demonstrates that besides the outright falsehood of their accusations, they're improperly making their accusations since those who accused him in Jerusalem are not now present, and those who are present can bring nothing against him in their actual interactions with him. He is guiltless of all they claim. And so that's the trial with Paul. What about the outcome of this trial? We see Felix's verdict, or lack thereof, in our second point in verses 22 through 27. This is an intensely interesting section of Scripture to me, these few verses here. Luke tells us that Felix actually knew quite a lot about what they called the way. Though he doesn't explain to us what Felix thought about the way. He, he has a rather accurate knowledge of the way. I think what's clear is that we ought to see in this that 
Luke is communicating, Felix knew the charges were bogus. Otherwise, he would have just ruled on it and condemned Paul. We see them all, and we'll talk about this more toward the end. They're, they're eager to do the Jews a favor. We see this just before he leaves. And so he's, he's bent on some type of def, deferential treatment toward the Jews, but he knew there was nothing to stand on. It would have been completely unjust to condemn Paul here. And so what does he do? Well, he defers. He says, well, I'd like to talk to Lysias. Lysias is the one who sent Paul to him in the first place. But he wants to pass the buck. Only then will I be prepared to rule on your case. So he commands that Paul should be kept in custody, but he should have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. And so, again, like Lysias, not, it's not all bad. could be far more unjust than he is, but he's not particularly interested in getting to the heart of the matter. And from all we know, Lysias is either never actually sought out, never actually comes, uh, this conversation is never had, and so, um, again, the determination to get to the root of Paul's problems just isn't there. But after some days, Felix himself, he comes to Paul with his wife, and he listens to him speak about his faith in Jesus. And so despite the delay in this trial, despite having no real way forward, no way out, Paul is undeterred. He continues to speak his message to any who would hear. And Felix listens to these words about righteousness, about self-control, and about coming judgment. And he grows alarmed. Felix is a great example of what it means and what it looks like to be moved by God's word without being moved to love it. Felix is alarmed, but he doesn't repent. He doesn't look to Christ with faith. He sends Paul away, and then for two years, he brings him back and forth, and he, he speaks to him often. But Luke tells us that a major driving consideration here for Felix was the possibility of, of getting some money. He wasn't interested in submitting to the coming judge, he maybe wanted some assurance from Paul, and he wanted a little green salad on the side. Hey, Paul, pay up, and I, I can make your situation a whole lot easier. But after these two years of frequent conversations, he simply leaves Paul in prison. He wants to do the Jews a favor. He's not willing to rule on it, to condemn him, but he's not willing to pardon him either. So the word here for each of us is pretty straightforward regarding Felix's response. Do not put your hope in an emotional experience or even a carnal desire to hear God's word. We know well about Benjamin Franklin he loved to hear George Whitfield preach, not because he cared at all about the content of this message. He was simply fascinated with how good of a speaker that Whitfield was. 
It reminds me, Felix reminds me of Ben Franklin a bit in that regard. Simply being moved by God's word is not enough. In what direction are you moved? Are you moved toward the Lord or away from him? Do you send the messenger away and only periodically when your interest is piqued do you bring him back? Think about it for yourselves this morning, for ourselves. Are we, are we struck with the reality that you have, I have, we have no righteousness to speak of in ourselves? Apart from faith in Christ, we are guilty. Are you saddened by a lack of self-control in your life and the way that such selfishness demonstrates the depths of sin that reside in your heart? Are you merely saddened and looking for ways to remind yourself that you're just not so bad? Are you alarmed at the coming judgment and yet unwilling to seek for refuge in this coming judge? Or are we resting in Him? Are we running to Him, fleeing to Jesus Christ for life and forgiveness and freedom? Felix had no such desire. So it's a word of warning to all of us. Don't just be interested and fascinated with hearing the word. But as James says, be doers of the word. So that's this outcome of of this trial, which is really no outcome at all. Just further delays. So look with me in the third place at chapter 25 and verses 1 to 12. Paul's been left in prison. Felix is um, succeeded by Festus. And Festus makes a trip to Jerusalem. And he's immediately presented with the Jews' case against Paul. It had been almost two years, or it had been over two years. Those guys were getting hungry at this point. Their vow that they wouldn't eat or drink till Paul was dead, surely wearing on them. But with the new governor, they are eager to reattempt the ambush. They attempt to convince Festus that, look, man, there's just no need. There's really no need for you to keep him there down in Caesarea. Let's bring him up to Jerusalem. This is an us thing, not a you thing. We'll take care of it. Of course, they didn't plan on Paul ever getting to Jerusalem, just like they had previously not planned on him ever leaving Jerusalem. And so Festus replies, unlikely is he explicitly told what the full intent of their plan was. He says, look, I'll go, I'll check it out, and some of you should just come with me, and if there's anything in the matter, bring it up then and we'll deal with it. Eight, ten days later, Luke says he returns to Caesarea and orders Paul to be brought before him. And again, the Jews, they lay many accusations against Paul, none of which they could prove. Surely these are just the same old false wounds that they've been nursing since his arrest two years prior. And so Luke doesn't even bother repeating what they say. We can write the script for them at this point. He blasphemes the temple. He preaches against Moses and the law. Paul simply replies, according to Luke, nope, nope, nope. Not against the Jews or the temple or the law, 
or even Caesar himself, nobody has a case against me. I've done nothing to any of them. Which again, should have been simple enough. He's got an airtight defense. The prosecution is leaky at best. But Festus, following in the footsteps of his predecessor, is eager to do the Jews a favor. He's the new governor after all. He doesn't want to stir up trouble with them. And so he asked Paul, perhaps this is a clever way out. Hey man, do you want to go up to Jerusalem to be tried? Paul says, nah, I'm good. I'm right where I need to be. He says, you know I haven't done anything against the Jews. So being tried in Jerusalem from a prejudicial Jewish court is out of the question. If I've committed a capital crime, then you just need to execute me. I'm not trying to escape punishment for a crime I've actually committed. But if every single charge against me is false, he says, and they all are, then you cannot lawfully lawfully hand me over to this bloodthirsty group. And if I'm going to continue to be held in custody, I want to take this all the way up to the chain, all the way up the chain of command. Take me to Caesar. Festus confers with his counsel and confirms what Paul, having uh, desired all along, he's appealed to Caesar. He says, to Caesar you shall go. So Rome it is. Back to Acts 19, 21. Paul wants to get to Rome. Not This isn't the way that perhaps he would have originally written it himself. This is certainly not the way that I would have written it for myself if I were Paul, but on to Rome he will go. So what about these, these three men, Lysias, Felix, and Festus? We see in them authority figures who, though not openly hostile to Christianity by any means, they're just not interested in justice. Lysias is probably the best of the three, but even he was prepared to arrest and flog a man without any cause. And the only reason he didn't flog him was because he realized how much trouble he could get in himself for beating a Roman citizen. But then he seemingly fails to follow up with Felix. Now Felix himself, he knew the way well enough to know that these charges were bogus. But even he leaves Paul in prison for two years and then refuses to pardon him on his way out of office. And Festus, while he's willing to let Paul speak in his own defense, he's more concerned as the new governor with, no, with, with earning brownie points with his constituents, constituents in, in acting justice. And here's the deal. We have many Lysias's, Felix's, and Festus's in our day. Men who, like these guys, ultimately fail to carry out the charge given to them by God given to the civil magistrate. Consider what Paul says of civil leaders in Romans 13. He says they are to be a terror to bad conduct, not to good conduct. The civil magistrate is to be God's servant of the, uh, for the good of the people. He is to carry out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. That is mostly not what we find in our day either. So let us, like Paul, boldly live godly lives with a good conscience. Let us speak the gospel message in faithful obedience to Christ. Let us testify to His grace, to His lordship. 
having similar leaders, some perhaps slightly better, some slightly worse or way worse than these men in Acts, and let us trust God that he would be pleased to work in many hearts through our witness. We do not, after all, need the government's permission to be Christians and to make disciples of Christ. In fact, the gospel often flourishes under persecution. And yet, we are not commanded to pray for persecution and to seek it out. We are commanded to pray for peace and quiet that we may live godly lives. Paul says this in 1 Timothy chapter 2. So we ought to pray for and seek civil leaders who love righteousness and hate wickedness. We should pray that God would make our current magistrates or that he would give us new ones to match the job description that Paul lays out in Romans 13, for instance. And we pray that as he does so, that we might lead peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. So that's one point of application from this sermon is to pray for our leaders and to seek and put godly ones into place. But what else? How then shall we live? Well, in short, it looks like staying prayerfully committed to our mission here at Redeemer Baptist Church. Paul appealed to Caesar precisely because it was his mission to get to Rome. Not because he expected justice from Caesar. It never got any better the further up the chain he went, and yet Paul was determined to get to Rome. And so, Redeemer Baptist Church, regardless of who is in office at federal, state, or local levels, let us remember We are and will be a family of faith that exists to worship God with joy, to love our neighbors, to see transformed lives, and to send and be sent for the spread of the gospel through Jesus Christ. We are a disciple-making body here. It's about making disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching them to observe all that Jesus commanded, whether or not... Justice is prevailing in our day. You know, I recently heard someone ask, how long does it take to teach someone to observe all that Jesus commanded? This is no two-year project. Are we committed to the long run? Right, we're not talking two years or three to five years or even really the next 20 years or 50 years. But what about the next 300 to 500 years? Let us pray that God would bless us to carry out our mission for centuries as God uses us and other Christians to make Rinkin, Effingham County, and all our surrounding towns and counties to become more peaceful and quiet places whose citizens want to live lives of godliness and dignity. So that the gospel will take root in the hearts of thousands upon thousands upon thousands of our neighbors. Those who are both near and far. Those who do not yet know Christ. 
so that they will submit every part of their lives to Jesus Christ. And when faced with persecution, when faced with the type of enemy that Paul dealt with here, pray that we would continue to be bold. So whether things are moving up or seemingly moving down, we want to be faithful and know what God has called us to do and to be so that we can live by that standard, not just what is expedient. Paul helps us here mightily in that regard. Well, amen.